Hello and welcome to The Disruption Code, this episode of the Event Manager Podcast with Sean Kanungo. I'm Miguel Neves, the uh, Editor-in-Chief of Event10B, and on this episode, I'm joined by none other than Disruptive Innovation keynote speaker, Sean Kanungo, and we talk about disruptive innovation and his story and how he got to be a speaker on disruptive innovation. We talk a lot about hybrid events and how they are still so new, and we are developing different ways of using hybrid events. We talk about Sean's amazing studio production and the team that he works with to make all his video and all his virtual events look as good as they can. We talk about the importance of looking good in virtual events or at any event and how that really helps to carry the message. We talk about the next season of events and how they are going to be hybrid and in-person and a mix of different events. And of course, we talk about Sean's favorite topic, NFTs and how we can apply NFTs to events. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you uh, subscribe and leave a review of this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you very much for listening. And now for a word from our sponsors, PHL Life Sciences, a division of the Philadelphia Convention and Visitors Bureau. Host your convention or trade show in Philadelphia, one of America's leading life sciences hubs. PHL Life Sciences, the first and only CVB division of its kind, will connect you to the professionals at the forefront of your industry and to a culture you can only find in Philadelphia. A city known for its rich history that's forging a bright future, Philadelphia challenges the expected and defies convention. A world of discovery is waiting. Visit phllife.com to learn more. Welcome, everyone. Uh, my name is Miguel Nevsh, Editor-in-Chief of EventMB, and I'm joined by none other than Sean Canungo. Sean, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. Uh, this is an honor and a pl- pleasure. And, you know, if you've gone this far on the podcast, I just recommend that you give him a rating, a review, <laughs> uh, subscribe on uh, Spotify or Apple, or wherever you are, because I think what you're doing is pulling together some really great uh, event strategists and thought leaders uh, in this space, thinking about the future. And um, so I, I've been enjoying diving into all of them and you're, you're doing such a great job. So there you go. Thank you very much. Thank you for being a listener and for recommending <laughs> to your audience. I think it's always great. So, um, you know, we've met, I don't know, maybe a couple of years ago, maybe online, uh, but tell me a little bit about how did you, how, who is Sean Kanungo? Give us an introduction in your own words of who you are and, and what you're all about. Yeah. So, um, you know, people call me a disruption strategist or in innovation strategist. That's what I'm really passionate about is, is, um, uh, you know, I spent 12 years at, at Deloitte, uh, really on the strategy innovation side, helping organizations with uh, figuring out how can they navigate disruption, uh, left them in 2018, and uh, on my own, uh, advising uh, corporate executives and organizations on disruption, uh, you know, being part of a number of different ventures, which are trying to scale up in the innovation technology space. And um, uh, to me, I live and breathe um, you know, technology innovation, thinking about what's next, thinking about the future. I obviously speak on this topic uh, a lot as well. And um, 
you know, that that's a little bit about me. I, I think at the end of the day, when people, you know, if people don't know me, like, you know, I'm describing myself, but I think for most people that are um, on the internet or they see me online or they've heard about me, they know me as the disruption guy. Like they, I've sort of, I've taken that word and I'll just take it to uh, when I die, I guess, Miguel. Well, it's important to have a kind of branding that you kind of stick to, right? I think it's, uh, I always well, say that when I meet someone, it's important to give them one thing that they can kind of remember me by. You know, I, I'm not going to be able to tell them my life story. I'm, they're not going to remember all the details. So usually I stick to something around like I'm Portuguese and, yes. and I used to do a lot of work on social media. So I'm the social media guy from Portugal. <laughs> and I, I feel like if they can remember those things, then at least anytime they think of Portugal or social media, they'll think of me. And I think, you know, if you as the disruption guy, that makes a lot of sense. When they think about disruption or kind of innovation, then they 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 may think of you, which I think is in, yeah, in terms you know, of branding. You know, when it comes to speaking as well, like people, uh, you know, when people ask me, uh, can you speak on diversity inclusion can you speak on leadership or sales or i am like i don't know anything about those things i i I only know this one topic which is around disruptive innovation and um i agree with you i think niching down and being known for something is uh is really important I, i i do think that there is room to evolve and and grow and and be involved in other things but it does help to be known for one particular thing for sure now Tell me a little bit about your kind of what, how would you define uh, disruptive innovation? I think that's, you know, obviously something you talk a lot about, but I'd be really interested to understand, is there a process? Is there a way to kind of incite disruptive innovation or is it because, because I, I kind of see people talk about this and it's, it's easy to shout out the Uber examples and the Airbnb examples and go like, look, these companies did disruptive innovation. Like I get it, but is there a way to maybe not guarantee, but to start us off or a company that wants to invest in being disruptive? Like, where do they start? Like, what is the, what kind of conversation should they be having? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's a great question. Um, you know, it's very difficult to be a disruptor. It's probably one of the most difficult things to do. Most people try to be a disruptor, uh, but it requires you to be courageous and to step outside of your comfort zone and challenge the status quo. To me, the, you know, to define disruption very clearly, it's somebody that comes into a space and fundamentally changes the status quo. It's somebody that is doing something so radical that it uh, changes the trajectory of not only that organization, but potentially the entire industry. Um, I think that is what disruption means. I, I think what people get wrong when it comes to you know innovation or disruption because people throw those words around like all, all the time. Um, I think innovation can be not only just technology; it could be about product or processes or your channels, or your workforce, your talent, your your customer experience. It can be all these different things, but it can also be very incremental, and at the same time, it can be very disruptive. Um, and so I think for organizations that are trying to be disruptors, I, to start, they have to be innovators, right? They have to develop a culture of innovation, uh, uh, allowing their people to try new ways of doing things, to experiment with new ways of doing things. Um, and then ultimately, um, by finding experiments that work, then you can actually 
uh, start challenging the status quo, bringing those experiments inside of your organization that reject sort of the immune system and those be things become sort of your new core. I think that is the way sort of being a, a start to be disruptive. It's again, it's very difficult to do, uh, but I think it's what everybody, every organization should strive to do is, is ultimately tr continuously try to disrupt themselves. Interesting. And you talked a little bit about the disruptive culture. Um, is that, is that, is that a leadership thing? Is that something that has to come from the top in terms of, you know, we are now a disruptive company and we have to do disruptive things. What, what does that mean? I believe that, um, I, I wouldn't dis describe it as a disruptive culture, but all, ultimately a culture of innovation. And I think, uh, it does have to come from the top where you have to empower people from the bottom. Like you have to empower everyone to go off and innovate, try new ways of doing things. Like to me, innovation is permissionless. The, 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 the biggest mistake people do when it comes to innovation is they, they get into innovation theater, right? They hire a chief innovation officer, a chief digital officer. They uh, have, you know, these uh, brainstorming whiteboard sessions. They, um, you know, they have an accelerator, they have an incubator, they, they are, you know, playing in this innovative theater, when in reality, the way of actually uh, just um, let, letting your innovation sort of fuel the organization or allowing it to be uh, free is just empowering people to try new ways of doing things. And I think that's actually, you know, it sounds, in, it sounds really uh, good in practice, but to actually put it into execution is very difficult because that means changing your performance management. It's actually changing your compensation. It's changing um, how you um, organize your talent. Like uh, imagine compensating people for taking shots and taking failures, saying you're going to get compensated for failing nine times out of 10. No one does that. So it's it's um, to truly build a culture of innovation requires leadership to um, to take a step back and allow their people to try. And also, I mean, I've I've heard this a few times, but I think uh, that idea that you don't don't punish failures, right? As long as there's a an idea, as long as something was tested, as long as something was tried for good reasons, and then failure is something that hopefully the organization can absorb and learn from, right? And, and kind of use that as fuel for future things. And I think you just hit on it, the, the, the key piece at the, at the end there, which was learn from something. I think ultimately, if you try an experiment and you don't learn from anything, then that's a bad idea. That's a bad experiment. And yes, somebody should be reprimanded for taking that experiment with no learnings whatsoever. Um, so I think we, we can't just experiment for the sake of experimenting. We need to learn and uh, build on top of it. And if we're not, it's not a good experiment. Right. Uh, that's really interesting. So let's jump to the event that you did a few days ago. I was, I was yeah. in the audience, checked it out, the Digital Disruptor. You were one of the keynote speakers, one of two, I think. You were sort of towards the end of the event. Um, it was a bit different. It was hybrid. It really kind of sold itself as being a, a really big a really different type of event. What was, what was your view as a speaker and what did you kind of like about it? And what did you think, what, what did you learn from it? 
Well, you know, to be honest with you, we, we, we learned a ton. And I, I want to give a shout out to um, Heidi and the entire crew at the Digital Disruptor because they really put on an ambitious uh, event. And the production level was high, you know, in Stavanger, Norway, uh, multiple cameras with the, their particular audience. And, you know, obviously getting some really great uh, speakers like Duncan, um, you know, for, for us on my side, on, on our production side, I think it was a, a, you know, we had a lot of fun doing it. Uh, I, at the end of the day, to me, uh, the goal is for at least a couple people in the audience to start the next day and changing their behaviors, trying something that they've never tried before or doing something different. Or, you know, I, I talked about a couple different pieces, whether it's around innovation or blockchain and, you know, just people sort of diving into it. To, to me, that is the uh, barometer of, for success. But I think when it comes to hybrid, I mean, that was the, that was probably the second, only the second hybrid where I was the person on screen while you know you had people virtually and then people in the audience. Normally when we've done a hybrid, I've been um, with a, an audience in front of me. So, so imagine doing something for the second time in your life. Um, and for the first time actually engaging with an audience on the ground floor, which was really cool. And I thought that was executed really well. Um, I think there, I think it was the first time that an, an event organizer tried something incredibly ambitious. Um, and it was, it was admirable. I, were we totally happy what we did on our side? No, I think we learned a million different things. And it's because it was only the second time we did it. We've done hundreds of different virtual events and we've, we're kind of starting to learn what makes a really great virtual event. I mean, we haven't really even started in hybrid and it's so difficult to engage people um, in person, online. And I said this, this, said this at the end, at, you know, during the Q&A, um, they asked me about the hybrid and I said, I've, listen, I've never had a threesome, but, but uh, being able to please both parties um, on site and virtually is extremely difficult to do. And I'm not sure if we accomplish that. I know with, you know, Duncan, who's a phenomenal speaker as well, you know, like he, he did a great job uh, engaging the in-person audience, but perhaps he could have done a better job, uh, you know, engaging the virtual audience and like, uh, you know, just going back and forth. And uh, I just thought that it was an incredibly ambitious effort. And I think we got a lot of learnings out of it. And I hope a couple people, you know, learned uh, some pieces out of it and were able to um, go off and, and change their perspective on a couple of things. What did you think? You know, you were there as well. Like, I'd love to get your thoughts. I, I, I agree. I think uh, Heidi has to be congratulated. I think it's, it's challenging. You know, I think especially being a keynote speaker remotely to a, to a hybrid audience, I think it probably would have been slightly different if you had an audience where you were. Absolutely. So if you were speaking from a sort of hub, then you have the people's energy to feed from, right? And, and you have people in front of you and you have that action. And, and that has a certain energy around it. When you're doing it remotely, like you said, we're just learning how to do this. If it was, if you were doing it to a virtual audience, you've kind of figured that out, right? You, you, when you're focusing on the virtual audience, you know, uh, maybe it's the chat, maybe it's the Q and A, whatever it is that you, you're kind of pulling out of the virtual audience. That makes a lot of sense. Um, when the audience is there in person, I, I think it's tough, and I think it's a tough ask 
for a, for a live audience, for an in-person audience to then watch a keynote on a screen. Oh, I mean, because I mean, how many people want to watch, uh, you know, a keynote while you're in person and you're watching a video? I mean, it's very difficult to pull off. I mean, unless it's a movie that's like, you know, billions of dollars of production. I mean, even at that point, you may want to still go on your phone. Uh, it is a very difficult ask from the from the audience perspective. So I I totally agree with you. Yeah, no, I I just think it's. So I, I've been part of a number of events that have done some sort of hybrid setup, and with hybrid, there are so many different combinations, right? But let's say I was doing a a Zoom based event recently, and one of the speakers wanted to kind of show off a little bit more of a hybrid setup. So it actually turned out being three speakers sitting at a table in kind of an office. And when everybody else is virtual, everybody else is remote, you know, large on the screen, and then three people are sitting in a room together, it's just instantly a different dynamic. And then the kind of the audio issues and the visual issues, like they can't see us as well, and we can't see them as well, and they can't hear us as well. So it's sort of like, I'm not saying virtual is perfect by any means, but when everybody's virtual, you, you know where to stand you know how to make that screen in front of that person come alive. You know what you have to do. When some people are virtual and some people are in person, um, then it's it's really hard to, to have that balance. And I think you guys did a great job, both you and Duncan, but it's a really hard task. Um, and, and like you say, I think getting people that are in person in the room to, to see a speaker remotely is, is, is a hard ask, is, is a really hard thing to ask people to do. You know, I, I was recently in uh, Vegas for an event, and it was a hybrid event as well. And, you know, there was like hundreds of people in this, uh, in one of the auditoriums, and they were watching somebody on screen, like basically in their house, um, you know, with a headset on, no engagement you know, and I was just baffled. I'm like, uh, I'll, I'll say, I'll text you the uh, the video after. I was I was baffled because I'm like, how is is this where we got to in terms of a hybrid event that you know we're just watching somebody on screen? It can't be it. It can't be it. And I think what uh, the digital disruptor did really well is that they did have an in person moderator uh, there, and she was, I mean. She was unbelievable trying to like get, trying to create a little bit of energy with the audience uh, that I couldn't provide when, because I wasn't physically there, um, you know, while people, you know, were on site. And I think she did a great job at trying to at least pull some people uh, together um, at the very least. It's a, such a hard ask. And I think it, 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 it asked the question, Miguel, like, can we do hybrid? Is it possible? Um, it, it, is it? Are we just? Because I see a lot of I see a lot of people talking about hybrid and how to do a great hybrid event, and I'm thinking to myself, is it too difficult to pull off? Because if I'm at a party and I think about events as like a magical space, uh, you know, where you're colliding with other people. Uh, you see people you haven't seen before. It, it you know, it, there's something about going somewhere and being part of a, an in-person event that you can't replace. And I'm thinking to myself, is it is it even remotely possible to create a unbelievable hybrid experience for both the virtual attendees 
and the in-person Heidi's. Is it possible? I guess more for, more so for the virtual because I think if you're in person and you it's you call it a hybrid, but still everything is just in person, then you'll oh. say it's great. But I'm saying both of them together. Is it even possible? The I event is hybrid, but you know nobody's having a hybrid experience. You're either having a remote online experience right. or you're at the event. So I think it's 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 a good question. Yeah, and I, I was kind of thinking first of all with with the digital disruptor. Norwegians are not known to be super participative at events, right? I mean, they're not, I think the Finns have, have even a, a worse reputation when it comes to that, but it's not an audience that's like ready to jump on stage and ask questions. Yeah. So that's a tough ask even for a live event. But I was thinking of for the virtual audience, I think both you and Duncan did a good job, but I think if you were able to just focus on the virtual audience, the virtual audience would have you know, had a lot more attention, would have felt a lot more well engaged, right? Because you're trying to kind of engage these two very different audiences because, and the challenge is this live audience. So you're kind of focusing a lot of energy on them. And I think if, if, if I was remote and you were remote and there was no live audience, I would feel much more like you were taking care of me more than taking care of the, the people that were in Norway, right? I think it's impossible to figure out how much attention you should place on each uh, audience. And I think this is the first mistake that we made. Uh, this was the biggest insight that I had when we ran our first hybrid event, when I had an in-person audience with me. And I, and I think that we dropped the ball on this too, is I was focusing way too much attention again into the in-person audience. We had maybe 50 people in person and we have 300 people virtually. And I was spending probably 70% of my time with people in person, which kind of, as a human, it kind of makes sense. These people showed up. So maybe I should, you know, you put my attention on them. But, but I should have remembered, by the way, there's actually 300 people online and my attention should have been more on them. How do you figure out what the balance is? It's, it's, it, that's why I'm saying it's so difficult to please both audiences. And it's, um, I don't know, like it's, it's, um, I can't yeah. wait for us to get past this sort of first inning where we're like, oh, we approached it in this sort of way that, that com it's completely wrong. I know there's an, the, there's an angle of approaching hybrid that I haven't really figured out yet, or we haven't figured out yet that is going mm -hmm. to unlock what hybrid truly, truly means. But at this point we're, we need people like the digital disruptor to continuously push, you know, uh, the narrative and try these experiments so that we can uh, learn from them. And um, yeah, I thought it was an unbelievably ambitious effort, and I applaud them. No, I think it's very true. Um, one of uh, somebody I've done a lot of work with, uh, Garrett Heikup. He runs a company called ha uh, Was it Live Online Events. And they've actually been doing hybrid events for a long time, mainly in the sort of association world. And again, what we mean by hybrid changes, you know, depending on the event, but they've essentially been doing live streams from mainly association events for a long time. And a lot of these end up being, you know, live stream of the speaker on stage. And then when there's sort of dead time in the audience, the virtual audience gets, um, interviews, you know, get sort of exclusive content. So it's more about sort of contextualizing and, and his role 
is normally the one of a moderator, not necessarily a speaker. And he always advises that there should be two moderators. You know, there should be a moderator for the live audience, a moderator for the online audience. At some points, you should sort of connect those two to make sure that everybody can, can hear everything. But it's not necessarily that easy to, to do that. So I think also the format of events helps a lot. You know, I think a sort of interview style format, uh, a conversational format, I think works pretty well for both types of audiences. Uh, I think the yeah. keynote delivery kind of high energy is a bit more challenging because then you're, you're dividing your energy in a way. Uh, I don't know about you, but whenever I've done keynotes, it's so important to feel that energy from the room and to sort of have yeah. as part of the keynote some sort of interaction, raise your hand, let me know if you agree, whatever. Totally. And if you're getting those signals in very different formats, it's so hard to really understand like what's resonating with which audience. So I think the formatting may be part of the solution or at least acknowledging what works well in one format and what doesn't work so well and sort of navigating it in that sense. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that, you know, it's all energy based, right? So when you're doing it, first of all, when you're doing something virtually, you don't feel any energy. So you, you're, you're, <laughs> you're just kind of running blind, similar to hybrid. But uh, when you're doing a hybrid, and there's an in person audience in front of you, I mean, I think part of the reason why you tend to focus a little bit more on the in-person audience is that's who's giving you energy. So you, you naturally try to gravitate, your, gravitate yourself to the in-person audience. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's a very difficult um, thing to, uh, to manage. And I think I, yeah, we, we, anyways, we, we learned a million things from this. Um, and I was getting, I was, I was kind of nervous with Duncan's because I know the, 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 the thing froze a couple of times and I was like, okay, I, 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 you know, you know, and, and I, and I felt for Duncan because sometimes, um, you know, as a presenter, you know, you, you have a narrative that you want to share and, 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 and continue on. And when something's broken, um, you know, in between, and I, I think that happened to us too, you kind of lose, you, you kind of, it's like watching a movie and you lose like part of it. You're kind of like, uh, should I keep watching this? Um, so I know for me that that's uh that, that's a big part too. So um, lots of learnings. Yeah. I like I like how you put it that you need to get the reps in, right? You need to kind of keep practicing until you figure it all yeah. out. Yeah. How many people have done you know a hundred truly hybrid events where you're engaging both audiences at the same time? I don't think there's anybody in the world that has done this yet. Yeah, there's people that have been running hybrid a long time before the pandemic, but not really sort of engaging people. Uh, you know, this in both ways, I, I, I have never seen it happen. And um, I think we're just in a new land, new world. Check out G Garrett. I think uh, you'll find some interesting stuff there. But his stuff is because it's very much for associations. It's not something that's in the public eye normally. But uh, I would definitely suggest checking him out. I think uh, they've done a lot of work and figured at least some of this stuff out. Are you ready to celebrate your successes in the world of meetings and events? The Skift Meetings Awards are back for 2024, recognizing the most innovative business events companies across 15 categories, and we want you to be a part of it. Winners will feature on Skift Meetings, sending a clear signal to events professionals around the world that these are partners they can rely on. The final deadline for submissions is June 11th. We encourage you to start your submission today to secure the best entry rates. For more information and to start your submission, head to live.skift.com. 
So Sean, I think, you know, as the disruption speaker, one of the things that I noticed that you've done, which is really interesting from my perspective, is that uh, you went out and you hired, I don't know exactly the deal, but you essentially, every time I've seen you speak and every video that I've seen you do is from a, a specific theater. And I know you've set up a quite a high production level crew there with sound cameras, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And for me, that's quite a unique approach because I'm, I, I, I used to be more of a speaker and I do quite a bit of speaking as well. And I've seen a lot of speakers invest heavily in creating their home studios, you know, which is, you know, have a spare room and, and, and buy a nice microphone and figure out how to use Ecamm or whatever it is. Yeah. You didn't take that approach. You went for, um, you know, a very different approach. Could you tell me a little bit about the thinking behind that and, and, and how that worked out? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm a psychopath. I, I don't know. <laughs> you know, you know, at the beginning of this uh, pandemic, when it hit, uh, and things sort of pivoted to virtual, I, I thought it was going to be a home game for us and my team because we've been doing so much video stuff over the years. Uh, and I, I, I literally called the the filmmakers that I normally work with, and I, I specifically um, say that they're filmmakers. They're not event people. They're not like they don't run events they they are filmmakers they 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 do documentaries and they you know that's that that's what they do i said have you guys ever done a live stream before they've they said they've never done one before so well let's try to figure out how do we how can we can create the best virtual experience that people have seen and i think of course the content is obviously the most important piece but uh for me i've like i i i think theatrics is a big piece of what I do. Like I, you know, I love making the presentations big and bold and unique and differentiated. I mean, I think it goes back to uh, my topic around innovation. If you watch an innovation speaker and they're look like looking like they're in a hostage video, I mean, it's not going to signal, uh, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to get that much confidence out of it. Um, you know, we, we were also lucky we've shot uh, some stuff in a theater before and we just, I think part of the reason why we love the theater vibe is because the lighting's already there. I mean, part of it is the economics. The lighting's already there. They've already spent hundreds and thousands of dollars of lighting in there. Uh, there's a stage already. It's built for, 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 for performance. I mean, throughout history, theaters have been the um, you know epicenter for performance. So to us, it always made sense that um, – you know, a theater might be a great way to do a, uh, an event, whether it's in-person or hybrid. And so there was the theater that we, uh, we knew and we shot in and we asked them, Hey guys, like, have you, have, has anybody ever done this? They're like, no. So we went in there and we, we tested the place out lighting and, and whatnot. And, you know, through hundreds of different events, we've kind of sort of figured out how to run an event there. And we just thought that that would be an ultimate all optimal place to uh, run a event. And, and since then, we've been able to work in other theaters and the theater that you saw us in Digital Disruptor. I mean, that's probably the fifth time that we've been in there because the theater that we were previously at, they're renovating. So, um, and by the way, we've like opened up to other theaters across, you know, our city that we've, you know, we could, we have a pick of, you know, five, six theaters that we can go to um, because everyone now has a, a strong internet connection. Um, and I think the the most important thing is, you know, in my presentations, I, I talk about this idea of costly signaling. It's this idea that by putting in perceived effort, it can actually result in greater value and meaning to the end client or end customer or the end viewer. Meaning if it looks like you put a lot of effort into something, 
the message is going to translate a little bit more. It goes back to the irrational side of human beings. Um, if I if it looks like I put a lot of effort customizing a presentation for you, you're naturally going to be a little bit more in tuned, a little bit, you're going to pay attention a little bit more because why would somebody do all of this just for this hour presentation on Zoom while you're eating lunch? It makes zero sense. But that's what costly signaling is all about. It's like, how can you make things more magical and meaningful and memorable? And to me, like putting an extraordinary amount of effort um, actually translates into a better message. I mean, I could be delivering the same message that I am in my house, but for some reason, the fact that I'm in a theater, the fact that I'm with a production crew, it's going to land a little bit deeper. It's, it's, makes it's, it makes sense. no sense. Yeah. No, I, I, th I think it, it, it all adds up nicely. But I, what I also thought was interesting is, you know, you kept your crew, you know, rather than sort of going home studio and doing everything yourself and figuring out how to, you know, press a few buttons and change the slides behind you, which I think most speakers have done you kept the crew, you know, you kept people involved, you kept, you know, hiring theaters out, not that you necessarily hired theaters out before, but you kept a sort of ecosystem around you going. I don't know how intentional that was, but I have this fear that speakers are now going to go back to kind of speaking live and then going to like want to do everything themselves because they're so used to this virtual environment where they had to figure out all this stuff. And, and I think it's, you know, it's, it's interesting to, to, to kind of keep that team going like it's not just you sitting in your home i don't know if that was ever something that crossed your mind um i think for me it's always been about how do you create the best experience possible and i can't do that myself i mean i don't i hate cameras and and gadgets and like even though i'm the innovation guy um i i i don't want to deal with all the stuff that's involved in the audio and the video and like i don't want to deal with all of it and i think also i think having um, really great people around you will just make the product better. I mean, of course, there is a cost element to all of this, right? And and mm -hmm. uh, of course, there's a cost to people helping you. Of course, there's a cost to, um, you know, renting out a theater. But can you imagine the cost of having hundreds of people in an hour session? I mean, that's hundreds, I mean, thousands of hundreds of, of thousands of millions of dollars of people wasting their time on you. So, um, for any speaker that has that opportunity to, to engage people for an hour, I mean, I mean, take it seriously. Like, I mean, how, uh, how much money is being wasted watching you? So uh, you better put the time in that, that that's, that's what I think. And so, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to continuously invest in uh, having world-class people around me so that I look good. Um, I think that's just important and just showing up uh, with high quality production. You know, if you go on YouTube and you put my name in, Sean can go into YouTube, you won't find a single video that's shot on an iPhone or that's um, not well produced because I want to also uh, project the fact that, listen, when you hire me for anything or you interact with me, that it's going to be high quality. I showed up today. With a podcast mic, because I want this thing to sound crispy. Um, mm -hmm. Showing up with and 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 showing your audience that you care I, is really important to me. I, that's I think that's a great message, and I think a lot of uh, event people will will agree with that. And 
I think it's easy to forget now that we've been to this kind of virtual only environment and everybody's figured out ways to kind of save money and make events cheaper. It's like, there's a reason events are expensive. And I think if you want to invest in people, if you want to invest in delivering a strong message, there's a, there's a cost to that, but there's also a return on that investment, right? Um, you know, I, I'm sure your message would be awesome if you were doing it from your spare bedroom in your house, but the message that you send out as a disruptor from a theater with high production value is a, is a stronger message, right? It's, it, it, it delivers, it, it's more impactful. Yeah, it's it's in incrementally. Yeah, I don't know how much it it it. I don't, I haven't like I haven't done the percentages, but it, I think it does at least change it a little bit. And by the way, it actually produces really better a uh, post production, um, right? So when we do something and now we're taking a clip and we're putting it out in the world, it actually looks nicer. Do you want to watch something afterwards that's you know slightly you know clip better and looks high quality. I think so. Um, and so that was the other piece uh, that I was thinking about was, you know, how do you make it look good? You know, that's why even in person, when I go to an in-person event, I still have a film crew with me. Um, this is pre-pandemic and post-pandemic. I still have a film crew with me because I want to make sure that I have a really high quality a shot of this content so when afterwards it looks high quality again afterwards um and i think that's a piece that we haven't really figured out in terms of events but i want to ask you why do you think whether it's uh speakers or sort of event designers wh why why is it that we don't put the love into you know making things feel good and look good at the end of the day like we should put our ultimate effort into it but why don't we do that what do you why do you think good question i mean i the amount of ceos that i see you know running important virtual events with a laptop on their lap with terrible sound and terrible lighting and not really caring and i've i've been on the production side of that and sort of asking people to turn and, and put lighting on and do stuff and, and a lot of people just won't do it you know they'll or they'll say like yeah I'll, I'll work that out later and then they show up for the event and it sounds terrible and i don't know i think maybe part of it is that they see the virtual medium as inferior you know that they, they would dress up and put a nice suit on and show up if they were doing a live event but when they do it virtually they don't feel it as as impactful um and i think another part of it is we we haven't done this long enough to demand it of them. Yeah. I think if, 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 if this, you know, I don't know, maybe this will be on, uh, you know, Buzzfeed or whatever. If there's people saying, Hey, CEO of whatever company, you got to like look good on camera. If I'm going to watch you or else I'm going to not pay attention. I think that kind of message, we know that as event people, but I think maybe that message hasn't gone through yet. And, and yeah, I think, it's it's just unfortunate. Uh, we are definitely seeing kind of lower numbers, lower attendance when it comes to virtual events. And I think that's part of the issue. It's not necessary that virtual events are, are worse. Uh, they're different, as you say. But when people don't make an effort, how do you expect the audience to make an effort? Oh, my God. That's it. I think you just hit it right on the head. That, that was the line. Um, yeah, I totally agree. And I... I the unfortunate piece, like I, I would love for every uh, CEO, every speaker that shows up to a virtual event to show up with effort, 
because it's going to raise the value of virtual events as a whole. And unfortunately, what has happened over the last 18, 19 months is that, um, you know, people are zoomed out, right? They have Zoom fatigue because they've seen way too many crappy events. They've been part of way too many Zoom meetings that are, um, you know, not that Should great. have been an email. And, yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, that, 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 that's really unfortunate. So, yeah, we're going to continuously try to um, elevate. We're always trying to elevate the experience virtually. And then even with hybrid, I'm excited. Like to me, it's like it's, it's it continuously it's, it's new land. So I can't wait to continuously um, experimenting and figuring out what this is all about. And, and I think uh, that goes to my sort of DNA. When everything is new, I, I, I just get excited and I want to try. It's disruptive innovation. It's, the, it's, it's a good thing to disrupt at this point. I mean, I have this thing that I say that when it comes to a, a virtual event, when people are watching online, the event is the guest in somebody's house, not the other way around. When you go to a live event, you're the guest. You know, you walk in, there's a, there's a red carpet, you go and sit down in the audience, you're the yes. guest at the event. But in virtual, the event is the guest in your house. So you got to show up nicely dressed. You know, you've got to show up looking good as the virtual event and be a good guest. And then people will pay attention because if you're not a good guest, they'll switch you off, right? They'll, they'll disconnect, whether it's mentally or physically. I see. That's great. I think that's, yeah, showing up, uh, you know, with a nice bottle of champagne so that people are like, oh, this, you know, he, she, <laughs> she or he really cares, I think is, uh, I think, I think that's a that's really important. great analogy. I think so, also we, we, I think we forget the fact that we, I have no idea what people are doing on the other side of a virtual event. Forget hybrid. Let's just talk about virtual. I have no idea what people are doing on the other side. Um, they could be going on Twitter or TikTok. And I think they probably are. I mean, I would argue that even if you had, you know, Donald Trump giving Barack Obama a massage, you would still be on Twitter. Like, I, I just think that there is, I mean, you, I, I see it with my, with, with my wife or even myself sometimes, I'm watching like an Avengers movie where they put hundreds of millions of dollars into the production and I'm looking on the internet for something. Like, I think when you're, the only thing that prevents us from not going on our phone when we're in an in-person event is because it looks bad uh, uh, to our neighbor that we're on our phone. Uh, and so I just, yeah, think that's that why everybody important. sits in the back row so that nobody yeah. actually see the right. I, I do this thing sometimes at, at in-person events when I can go to them and I, I, I kind of stand behind the last row and I look at how many people are on their phones. And I, every time I've done this exercise, I usually see more than 50% of the audience on their phones. You know, we like to think about the in-person events as being super engaging and everybody's watching everything, but it's just not true. You know, a lot of us are checked out and hopefully they're on their phones because they're tweeting about the event. But I think that most are checking their emails and kind of getting sucked into the day to day that they're not able to do while they're, you know, in sessions. And I, I think it's I, just natural. I think we should take a uh, page from the comedy shows where they use Yonder and they put people's phones in. And so that you're uh, you know, totally immersed and engaged into the actual content. I've never been to a business conference yet where they've done that, but I think we should. We should um, 
uh, invest in that. And, and, you know, I think the comedians that do that, they've all said that they get a better engaged audience when the phones are off. And it's funny when you, when you go to a show with yonder, you'll see people like randomly, like just touching their, their, their they'll, they'll like look for their phone, even though they know it's not there. It's just like an instinct that we have, like, where is it? Is it in my, my pocket? Like, it's wild. It's, I mean, that's how the, addicted we are. It's the ghost vibration, right? When you think your legs vibrating and the, yeah. your, your phone's not there. So what are your plans for the fall season? We, we wanted to talk a little bit about kind of what's happening with events. I guess hybrid is a big thing. Do you have a lot of hybrid events kind of lined up or what, what, are, your, what, are, what are you seeing for the fall I mean, season? At, yeah, I mean, at this point, uh, September is still all virtual. Uh, October, I mean, every week I am going somewhere. There's still, it's like a mix of in-person and virtual. Um, I think people, are, uh, most organizers are afraid of hybrid and I think are trying to, you know, avoid it. Um, or if they are, they're just kind of just only live streaming. They're not doing something as ambitious as what the digital disruptor are doing. But I think, um, yeah, it's a combination between virtual and uh, in-person. Obviously, I'd say 70% more uh, virtual and 30% in-person. And I think um, we'll see. I mean, I thought we would be done by now. So I'm not making any predictions about you know where this pandemic is going to go. Uh, but I think you're going to see a lot more people try hybrid, um, and, uh, you know, investigate a little bit more of what that's going to look like in probably 2022. I think it's too, for most people, it's way too ambitious and it's a lot of money, right? Um, being able to, uh, produce something that's high quality, uh, a hybrid, a hybrid event that's high quality is very expensive to do. And I think most are uh, afraid to do it right now. Yeah, that's that's pretty much what, what we're seeing as well. Um, I want to make sure we have time to cover what I think is one of your favorite topics, which is NFTs. And I remember yeah. us talking about the last event. We, we mentioned it briefly, but I, I'm particularly, you know, NFTs are a complex and also a bit controversial subject. You know, I think a lot of people are seeing an opportunity to invest and get involved. And a lot of other people are, are just confused and and I'm not really sure what's happening, but I'm particularly interested in your views on NFTs for events or how do they connect with kind of the event industry? And I know you had some sort of ideas around that. Maybe we could touch on that briefly. I, I honestly believe NFTs are a great a way of um, engaging an audience pre-event, post-event, uh, during event, I think it's, I had this great, and you can go on YouTube, I uh, have an hour long talk uh, uh, with An Yuen about uh, NFTs and events. And that was early in the game um, that we were exploring what the possibilities are. And uh, by the way, for those in the audience, NFT is a non-fungible token. It's essentially a digital collectible that you can get on, you know, uh, that's authenticated through the blockchain. And I think the greatest example, you know, I did that video with Ann and then, a month later, a couple months later, uh, Gary Vaynerchuk uh, came out with a NFT project that's tied to events. And I think we have to give him a lot of credit because I think he has paved the way for what an uh, NFT in events actually means. What he did was he, he minted a number of different, um, I guess, characters that people could own and invest. Um, and those tickets are those those collectibles are not only an asset that people can own and trade and whatnot, but they unlock uh, a 
tickets to a, an event for the next three years. And they also have other features like it's you can get a FaceTime or you can get, you know, a copy of his book or or whatever. Um, each of those each of those characters or collectibles that people own have different attributes uh, that you can get for, from Gary. And I think the interesting part is that it actually gives you the uh, ticket to a potential event. And mm-hmm. um, what he's done is not only he's changed the entire business model of events, he's changed the engagement of, uh, of events. And I don't think anybody in the event industry is paying attention. <laughs> and you got to give the guy credit because he was the first one to truly create an NFT project that's related to events that was a big hit. I mean, this thing is worth, I don't know, $41 million right now. Um, and uh, people are trading. It's still a, a very highly touted NFT project. And I think it goes back to what events are. Events are supposed to be the epicenter for community. And um, NFTs are a great way of getting your audience to be an owner uh, of the community, being f- feeling like they own something as part of your community. Whether you are, you know, the dairy farmers of Netherlands, or you are, you know, the uh, the orthodontists of New Jersey, like you can feel like you're part of the community by maybe even owning something. And, and there's lots of ideas on how NFTs can impact events from uh, ticketing to uh, owning a, piece, a moment within a particular conference to um, you know, minting different dynamic NFTs where something happens during an event and now you can own a piece of it. Uh, I, I think there's lots of elements that we're, we should be exploring. And I think Gary Vee has paved an amazing trail for us. So you have a production team following you around all events. You create all these videos. When are those going to become NFTs? <laughs> well, I did mint. I, I have minted a, a couple of NFTs. Um, I think what, what Gary has, what I don't have, and I think what many organizations have and brands have, what they don't have, is uh, they have attention, but they don't have community. And I think... We should be very, when people talk about community, they throw it out so loosely, like community, community. Uh, I think when people talk about community, they're really actually just talking about tension. I think community is ultimately not about the brand or the organization, but it's about the people uh, and the individuals as part of the community that are able to evangelize the the product or the brand on their own, that they're having conversations on their own. And I think uh, for most brands, they don't have that. They just have attention. Um, I'm not, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not so naive to, to know that I don't have a community. I have attention. I don't have community. Gary V is at a level where he does have a community. You can see it in his discord that people are talking about him, but also they're talking to each other as well. Um, I would argue that you have great companies like Nike that are amazing and they have, they can garner a lot of attention. I don't potentially, they might have pockets of community, but, um, so I, I, and I think events actually do have community. I think you have like-minded people from different industries that are coming together that are, uh, that, yeah, they do have community. And I think that is an unbelievable trait to have because most companies and brands don't have that. And so 
how can we actually utilize this community uh, for good and change the business model and change, um, you know, get into this NFT space? I think it's really, really exciting. So um, I would love to get to a point where I start developing a community and that's going to take time and investment. And uh, yeah, I can't wait to get to there. That sounds really interesting. Make sure you, well, I'm sure we'll see news of your uh, NFTs as soon as they're minted or, or the community. Um, yeah, I'm, I am working on something, but I'm not ready to, uh, to release that yet. But I, I, I don't want to do something that's kind of, um, right now we're in NFT, uh, I would say NFT, you know, fantasy land where there's a lot of people buying, you know, apes and rocks for millions of dollars. Um, to me, I think uh, I'm excited about giving really great utility for an NFT. I think Gary has done that. I think others have done that. And I, I, I want to do something like that where it's not just something that you, you know, you, you just, you can own your pocket, but it actually gives true utility. That sounds like a, a good way of looking at NFTs. And, and yeah, I've been following the, the Gary V, the V friends uh, NFT uh, experience quite a bit. And I think there's parts of it that are really interesting. Um, I think there's parts of it that are, that are sort of like a, a voucher almost like if you buy the gold package, you get to speak to Gary or, you know, in that kind of terms. And so, but I think there's elements of the NFT that are unique to NFTs, uh, particularly if you're selling the NFT or if you're trading that, that kind of like secondary market. I think that's yep. quite interesting because you don't necessarily, I guess you could trade a voucher or a sponsorship of Gary V, but it would be a bit tricky. And with NFTs, it's sort of built into the way they work as far as I understand. So that does make a lot of sense. Yeah, I think for uh, many events, you know, I, I'd say sporting events. If you're, if you're, you know, if you if there's a secondary market, the the team or the organizers don't get the cut from that royalty, right? Mm -hmm. They it's just traded on a secondary market. They don't get a piece of that. And I think with NFTs, it's already built into the to the code that you do get a piece of the resale. And I think that's super disruptive. Um, and I think that changes the business model. So it does also push people to be early investors, right? Because if you're the first investor, then you get to have that derivative kind of revenue from the selling of the NFT. I don't know if it works. I don't know exactly how it works, but I don't think that if you're uh, in the secondary market, do you keep then accumulating those kind of deals? Or is that only for the first purchaser? That's only for the first, the, the person that, I mean, depends how the code is written, but the person that essentially is the uh you know the 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 minter the the organizer uh mm -hmm. the original founders essentially of the nft i mean in most projects they're the ones that are uh, benefiting from it um yeah and by the way there's uh i've seen unique um i've seen unique ways that people have used nfts so for example if you have an event and people share the event, then if, if you share the event and you, you share your sort of uh, your address, your sort of ether address, you can actually contribute, you can actually get compensated for sharing that event, uh, which is really interesting. So you can actually have an event go viral and everyone being compensated for sharing that event. Uh, and you can only really do that through NFTs. And so it, it, it actually, you're, what you're doing is you're trading likes and comments and shares into investment and ownership, uh, which I think is probably where 
uh, you know, we're going with this. Um, I think it's really exciting and, and, and disruptive. That sounds really interesting and definitely a lot of potential there for communities and for events. I think it, it makes a lot of sense. Great talking to you, Sean, um, as always. Um, thank you for being on the podcast. I would like to ask you one last question, um, which is really about who we should invite next oh. to be on the podcast. We'd love to just pick your brain and, and find a guest that you maybe would, would want to suggest that would be a, a good guest. And we're going to go back and, and kind of contact all these people and hopefully have them on this, the second or third series of the podcast. Well, first of all, you're doing, like I said, again, if you've gotten this far during the podcast, you know, please subscribe, rate, review. It would really help. It's a great podcast and putting a lot of effort into it uh, because you are curating some uh, awesome uh, folks within the event industry. Um, you know, I think uh, it would be great to have Gary V. I think I think what he's doing with V Friends is great. I think it's getting I think getting somebody like um, that's in the NFT space at the intersection of NFT and events would be awesome. There's a guy named Rob Morrison. Uh, he's got a new company called NFT. Uh, it's called a Nifty Agency, which is really trying to work with brands um, and events um, in the NFT space. I think uh, Anne would be great on the podcast as well. I mentioned her. Um, I think, uh, man, there's there's a lot of people. I, I you, you know, um, yeah, I think that's what I would say. Yeah, I, I'll leave it those two people. Awesome. Those three Great people, Gary, Rob, and yeah. I'm sure Gary gets about a million uh, requests for being on podcasts, but hey, let's let's be a million and one and you never know. Well, I think <laughs> Sean, thank you so much. It's around NFT and events. I think he might get, uh, yeah, he might get excited about it. That might be, yeah, that's that's a good topic. At least it's a little bit different and maybe a little bit uh, yeah, like you said, I think he's doing something a little bit uh, a little bit unique. So it'd be good to, to get his view on it on the podcast. Sean, thank you so much. Uh, everybody listening, like like Sean said, please rate, review, um, and let us know what you think about the podcast. Uh, thank you for listening, and hopefully you'll join us again on the Event Manager Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Event Manager Podcast. Please subscribe and rate the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. For the latest news and the best articles on technology and innovation in the event industry, head over to eventmb.com.